Let's pray together. Our Lord, we do give you thanks for this time. We thank you for these brothers and sisters who have gathered. We thank you for your word, for by it we can know you. You've not left us in the dark, groping, figuring out who you are or what life is about. You have revealed yourself in your word. So as we come to your word now, humble our hearts that we might be eager to hear, not from man, but from God. And having heard from God, we pray that you would do what only you can do, which is minister to each of our hearts where we are, and speak a particular and necessary word to us. Comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us, rebuke us, correct us, admonish us. Do what is needed in our lives according to your word. And through it all, bring us closer to Jesus. And we pray that you would lift him up through the proclamation of the word today and lift our hearts closer to him that we might be saved. Do more than we knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. I hope that this week uh, brings you much joy and gladness and happiness as you celebrate the birth of the Lord. This week I was told that I do not smile enough. I want you to know I am really happy. This is as much as I get, though, and I mean that when I say to you a Merry Christmas to you all, and I do hope that this week brings you great joy. As we prepare to celebrate Christmas this week, it is appropriate for us to ask ourselves again, why did Jesus come? Now that may sound so elementary and so basic and such a no-brainer to you that it's not even worth considering, but humor me for a moment and ask yourself again, why did Jesus come? Why did he appear? Now no doubt if I were to survey the room, I would get all kinds of answers, good answers, great answers, right answers, I'm sure. And if you were to survey the New Testament, you would likewise find many answers as well. In fact, when you when you talk about the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, becoming one of us, it's sort of like this jewel that you can examine from many angles and see it and still see more and more beauty as you keep turning it over and over again. So likewise, if you just look throughout the New Testament, you'll find many reasons for why Jesus came. For example, he came to seek and to save the lost. In Luke, Jesus once says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to serve. In Mark, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In John, Jesus says that he came to give us life. I've come that you might have life, and life abundantly. Paul, in 1 Timothy, tells us that he came, most basic of all, to save sinners. Paul says, This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And so on it would go. If you were to just survey the scriptures, you would find an abundance of reasons, like a jewel again. We could turn this thing over and over again and find new and deeper reasons for why Jesus came. Now, no doubt all these reasons are related, are integrated, are correlated, are part of one bigger story, but there are many reasons for why Jesus came. This morning... I want us to consider another reason, one that I am sure doesn't quickly come to mind, one that we probably don't think about when we think about why Jesus came, why the Son of God appeared. In fact, that reason is tucked away in the book that we just finished studying. So in case you were panicking that we're going back into 1 John and preaching through it all over again, we're not. We finished the book, but what we want to do is examine one verse 
that's sort of tucked in the book. I don't know if you noticed it or heard it as Eric was reading it to us. But in 1 John, in the passage that we heard, was tucked away this reason for why Jesus came. This reason for why the Son of God appeared. If you look, it's in 1 John 3, verses 8. In fact, it's not even the whole verse. It's just one sentence. This is what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I want you to hear that again. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that is not a reason you normally think of, right? None of you got a Christmas card in the mail that said, Merry Christmas. The reason for the season is Jesus came to destroy the devil. On that cheerful note, happy holidays and have a happy new year, right? Nobody sings songs about Jesus coming to destroy the devil. It is certainly not a reason we normally think of. And yet John is saying here that one of the reasons for the season, one of the reasons why Jesus came, one of the reasons we have Christmas is that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It's just one verse, not even one full verse, one sentence. And yet in that short sentence, I want us to consider that reason today and think through it. It's a, it's a verse that's so short you could memorize it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Okay, now I know that as soon as I talk about the devil, probably most of us are divided into two parts where we come at that conversation maybe even from one of two extremes, right? As soon as I start talking about Satan or the devil, some of you grew up in church-going religious backgrounds. And so the devil was everywhere, and you could blame Satan for everything. If you got sick, it was Satan's fault. If you failed a test, Satan troubled you. If you were late to work, it was Satan who messed up your alarm clock. And everything that was bad in the world was Satan's fault, right? Uh, bad hair days, country music, the Dallas Cowboys, Satan is responsible for all of this, right? And maybe some of that's true. Um, Jeff is here from Dallas. I just noticed that, right? So, so if you grew up in that world, Satan is around every corner, around every bush, and you can blame Satan for everything. Now, some of us grew up in the opposite extreme, maybe not in religious homes, ne nowhere near a church, where this talk of Satan and the devil and demons, I mean, you immediately think of the Bugs Bunny cartoons with the red tights and the pitchfork and the horns, and, and you've got to be thinking, how could educated, intelligent people possibly believe in that? To you, all of it sounds like a myth or a fairy tale or a fable told to, you know, figure out what to do with our guilt, some kind of cosmic boogeyman that people have made up. If you fall in that camp, you're likewise in an extreme error. And I can't help but think of the movie The Usual Suspects and that great line, right? If you've seen it, you can't forget it. It's, it's this line that said, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was to convince the world that he doesn't exist, right? And so if you, you fall in that place, you're at another extreme. C.S. Lewis said it well. He said this. I want you to hear this quote. He wants us to avoid both extremes, and so he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right? So here are the two camps. You can, you can either not believe it or believe it too much. 
right? See it around every corner or see it around no corner. And what the scriptures want to do is help us to avoid either extreme and to have a biblically balanced, right understanding of the enemy of God. And so here's what the scriptures teach. If you want to know what the scriptures say, here's what it is. The scriptures teach that in the beginning there was God. In fact, God existed before there was history and before there was time. This almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good God. He existed in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this God created all that has been made. Nothing that has been made exists without God creating it. And when God created, he created the visible world that we see with mountains and rocks and hills and trees and birds and people. But he also created this invisible world, this spiritual world that we don't see with spiritual beings and heavenly hosts and angels, creatures that were created for his pleasure, to do his will, even to serve us for his good. Now, I want us to remember as we talk about creatures, spiritual beings like angels, that we're talking creator and created creator and creation. I want us to remember that when we talk about things like angels, we're not talking about something that is equal with God. Angels are not like God. They're not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're not omnipotent. They're not all-powerful. They're not omnipresent. They're not everywhere at once. And that's important because as we talk about fallen angels, I want us to remember that this conflict that God has is not with his peer. It's not with an equal I mean, this is an unfair fight. God is here, and his enemy is here. They're locked in a cage match together, but this is a joke of a fight. This is God and the enemy. And the scriptures say that nonetheless, God created these angels who were to do his will and to serve us. But the scriptures say that in the beginning, there was one angel who grew proud who wanted God's throne. And in his pride and in his haughtiness, he rebelled. And this angel, the scriptures call this fallen angel Satan or the devil or Lucifer or the father of lies or the murderer or the enemy or the accuser of the brethren, the serpent, the dragon, his titles are many in the scriptures. And this angel that rebelled against God led a rebellion, an insurrection against God and took a third of the angels with him. Now, that battle lasted about three seconds, right? Because God is here and the enemy is here. And so quickly, this enemy was cast out of heaven down to the earth. And so it's as if the war zone shifted from the heavenly places down to the earth. And so now the enemy of God and his legion of what we call, the scriptures call demons, roamed about the earth. And now the most tragic part of this story is that God had created human beings in his own image and likeness, and we joined the rebellion. We joined the side of the rebellion. The scriptures tell us that in the beginning, this serpent went into the garden to the first man and to the first woman and tempted them and lured them to follow him in sin. And when they did, they sided with rebellion. They found themselves in that moment just like the fallen angels at enmity with God, separated from God, at war with God, in conflict with God. They were removed from God. I I want you to know that's what sin is. 
Do not take sin lightly, for sin is siding with the rebellion. The scriptures tell us that what happened therefore, and this is important for you, is that all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve received from their parents this sinful nature and disposition. That just like you pass on traits to your children, we receive from those parents a sinful nature. The scriptures say we were conceived in sin. From the hour of our birth, we are born in iniquity. We are children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born on the rebellion side, at enmity with God, separated from God, at war in conflict with God. By nature, and then subsequently by choice, we side with Satan. I want you to know that every sin is rebellion. Do not take sin lightly for what you are doing. What you are engaged in is to side with the fallen angels and their rebellion against God. And so what you find in this creation is that there is this one holy God. And then there is all that has been created, these fallen angels and this sinful man, caught up in this rebellion against God. Now... There is one difference between our rebellion and the rebellion of the devil and his demons. There's one difference between our war and his. And the amazing thing is that difference doesn't lie in us. It doesn't lie in the devil or his demons. The difference lies in God. And here's what I mean. It's that when Satan and the angels rebelled against God, they were cast down. And they have nothing but just punishment and judgment waiting for them. But we, God loved us. And God had mercy on us. And God decided to save and spare us. Now I want you to think about that because if you think about it, if you come to church week in and week out and presume upon God's grace as though it's owed to you, as though of course it's due to you, I want you to hear that there were creatures who rebelled against God and God had no obligation to show them mercy. Do you hear that? There is no salvation plan for the devil and the fallen angels. All that is waiting for them is the just judgment and penalty for their sins. There's no rescue. There's no redemption. There's no mercy. There's no grace. All that's waiting for them is for them to receive what they deserve. And God was likewise not one ounce obligated to do any different towards us. But upon the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, God showed mercy and God showed grace and God had compassion and God had love for us. And so that dividing line means that when Satan and his angels sinned, they were cast down. But when the human race fell, at that very hour, rather than being cast away, a promise was given. I want you to hear that again. The the angel that fell and his demons fell, and immediately they were cast down forever to be destroyed. But at the very hour of the human race's fall, a promise was given. In fact, that's what you hear in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call this the proto-evangelion. Evangelion means gospel. And this is the first announcement of the gospel. And it comes seconds after the human race falls. Here's what it says. 
He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the moment that man falls, God gives this promise. And the promise is, listen, serpent, there's going to be a war between you and me. And this war will come to its climax when I send a child. A child will be born of woman. And this child, you will hurt him, but he will crush your skull. And this promise is given. And John says... It's in fulfillment of that ancient promise to destroy our ancient foe, to crush the skull of the serpent. For this reason, the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So here's what that means. If you follow that, if you get that, here's what that means. That means that Christmas is not just this quiet, serene, countryside, wintry, wonderland, perfect moment. It means that Christmas is an act of war. That war had been declared in Genesis 3.15, and Bethlehem is not just shepherds watching their sheep by night. Bethlehem is not just three kings traveling from Orient are bearing gifts. Bethlehem is an act of war. You see, Jesus, the scriptures teach us, was born into a war zone. From the moment he arrived on our planet, the war between him and Satan climaxed and began to intensify and began to grow. I want you to hear that the world that Jesus was born into was not this sweet, sentimental, postcard world. It was the furthest thing from a winter wonderland. The world that Jesus was born into is the kind of world you see on the nightly news. A world of sickness and sadness and death and murder. A, a world of sin and brokenness. A world that was torn apart. That was the world that Jesus was born into. And Jesus was born into that world to announce Emmanuel. That in this mess, in this mess, God is with us. That God is with us in the midst of this muck and mire. In the midst of this brokenness and this fallenness and this sin. Into this sin-soaked world, Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, if you just read the scriptures, you find this war erupting from the moment he's born. Last week we heard of the tragedy that happened and the horror and the evil that happened in Connecticut. Time Magazine called it the Massacre of the Innocents. Now, if you're familiar with that bi your Bible, that title shouts out to you. The Massacre of the Innocents, it's an appropriate title, a fitting title for what happened. But if this week you begin to read the Christmas story and you read God Matthew's Gospel, in some of your Bibles you're going to find a title that says the Massacre of the Innocents. Because that title was borrowed not, it, it didn't originate with our Christmas time. It's a title borrowed from the first Christmas time. The scriptures tell us that Satan knew that this promised child had arrived. The child who God had sent who would crush his skull had arrived. And in a murderous, paranoid rage, 
Satan thinks that if he can take Jesus out, perhaps this plan is done and he can continue to be the God of this world and the God of this age. And so he works through this paranoid, deranged king. A man so violent that history tells us he murders members of his own family and then orders this slaughter of the innocents. Archaeologists tell us that Bethlehem was such a small town, probably a thousand people, that they estimate the number of children massacred would have been about 20. When you read the scriptures and you hear the scriptures say the women, the mothers in, in Bethlehem were weeping and refused to be comforted because their children are no more. You find that what you're finding now, what we're feeling now, is what was felt when Jesus first arrived in the world. We have a hard time figuring out how are we going to reconcile what has happened and how does Christmas fit into all this. I want you to hear we need Christmas more than we've ever needed it because Christmas is this announcement that Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. Right? Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. What we've been feeling over these last few weeks is exactly what happened even when Jesus first arrived. Christmas is as important and appropriate as it has ever been, as relevant as it has ever been. I want you to know this hatred for children is signature Satan. Satan not only hates us, I want you to hear this, in particular, he hates children. He hates children ever since it was announced that a child would come who would crush his head. Every, every successive child was then a threat, a reminder of the promise that his end was near. And so he hated them. Furthermore, when Jesus arrived, children began this, became this incredible picture of the gospel. Jesus would go around preaching that when you become a Christian, you're born again. It's new birth. It's newness of life. And so every infant is this picture of the gospel. It's this new life that we're given. We were once dead following Satan and Satan, and we're given newness of life. And so children reek of the gospel. They reek of Jesus. And so Satan hates them. Jesus furthermore once took a child and held him up and said, unless you become like one of these... You can no means enter the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Now, when he said that, he's saying, look, here's a picture of what it means to come into the kingdom of heaven. And he's not referring to their perfect innocence. No, we already established we have this sin nature. We inherited sin by nature and choice from Adam and Eve. What he's pointing to is, you know, a baby can't help but be helpless and be needy. And be dependent. A, a baby brings nothing, offers nothing, merits nothing. In fact, for a child to survive, it survives solely because of the grace and mercy and provision and love of another. And Jesus is saying, that's how you're going to come to God if you're going to come to him at all. Listen to me. If you bring God a resume, you don't know God. If you list a bunch of merits and qualifications... You evidence that you don't know God. If you've got reasons stacked up for God, performance, if you've got church attendance marked off as why God should love you or accept you, you don't know God. Because Jesus says the only way you come 
is helpless and needy and dependent with no merit and nothing to offer with the only hope of survival for your soul being the grace and mercy and love and provision of another for you. And if you come, you come that way or you don't come at all. And so children are this picture. I mean, every bit of them so reeks of the gospel that since Satan hates Jesus, he hates children. Semma wrote, he hates our children. What a sobering thought that ought to be for us. Dads, what a sobering thought that ought to be for you. And, and this hatred for children has been there from the beginning. When you read in the Old Covenant, you read Exodus, and you find that just like he did in Herod's time, Satan inspired this paranoid, murderous king of Egypt to do what? To slaughter the children. As you keep reading through the Old Testament, you find that Israel is trapped in idolatry, and they worship these foreign gods, and they, they become so warped by their sin that they offer their own sons and daughters as sacrifice to these idols. Psalm 106 will comment on it. I want you to hear what Psalm 106 says about that. It says they serve their idols. And then it says this. In the Old Covenant, in Psalm, it says they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. They sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. So here's Israel thinking they're just engaging in this religious practice. And there is this sinister smile of the serpent behind what they're doing. That they think they're offering these things to these gods but in reality, what they're sacrificing to, the scriptures say, is to demons because behind all of this is the evil one. And as he hated on that day and then, he hates even now in our day. I want you to hear, child sex trafficking is now the second largest criminal activity in our world, second only to drug trafficking. Child sex trafficking. In our country alone, 2.8 million children run away from their homes in the U.S., and about a third of them are lured into prostitution or pornography. In the last 40 years, think of that, in our lifetime, from the moment some of you have been born, you've lived longer than this, some of us. In the last 40 years worldwide, 1.2 billion children have died while being in their mother's womb through abortion. 1.2 billion children in our lifetime through abortion. John says, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And when all of this sort of cascades down upon us, and when we're tempted to despair and lose hope, John follows that by saying, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Oh, would you, would you memorize that this Christmas? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, that this stuff might come to an end. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, notice the word destroyed. He didn't say limited. The reason the Son of God appeared was to limit the devil or to alleviate the works of the devil or neutralize or, or minimize or hamper or hinder. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy 
the works of the devil. You see, that's why Bethlehem is like Normandy was in World War II. It was the beginning of the end for the enemy. It announced this war has now come. And this is the beginning of the end for the serpent. Jesus had come to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy sin and its hold over us and its guilt over us and its penalty over us and its power over us, to destroy death and Satan and to ruin it all. What you have in Bethlehem is the warrior king who is born, who is finally going to be strong enough to put an end to the enemy that we were under all our lives. I want you to hear this. Jesus escapes as a baby, but as his life continues, what you find is this constant war. That just intensifies throughout his life. When Jesus grows up, the scriptures tell us he's led into the desert to be tempted by who? By the devil. Not a junior demon, not the senior demons, the devil himself. So in Matthew 4, you're watching this showdown between God and Satan. It's toe-to-toe, except this is not a fair fight. This is God now come in the flesh to rescue us because he loves the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And when the serpent comes, he comes almost like he came just to the first man. He almost figures, you know what? If the first man was in a lush garden and his belly was full and I could tempt him with food, how much more than this man who had been starving for 40 days, fasting in the wilderness, how much more will he give in as well? But where Adam had failed, And where you and I have always failed, Jesus triumphed. In fact, so much so that he emerges out of that wilderness, starving as it were, victorious. And the devil, for the first time in all of history, finally had to walk away defeated. Because there was one he could not beat. And that battle continues throughout his life. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you find what? Jesus is constantly casting out demons. When you hear that, please don't just think of that as a miracle or some kind of supernatural event. See it for what it is. It's war. Because every person, every son of Adam and daughter of Eve that's held by the enemy that Jesus meets, he casts out. I don't know of a single demon in the New Testament that appears before Jesus that is not cast out. And every time, it's Jesus triumphing over them. I don't know of a demon in the New Testament that doesn't see Jesus and shriek and scream and plead for mercy. I know who you are. You are Jesus, the Son of God. What do you want to do with us? And they must obey whatever he says. If he tells them to shut up, they shut up. If he tells them to leave, they leave. If he tells them return no more, they return no more. Because he had come to destroy the works of of the devil and with every day and with every moment of his ministry he's pushing back more and more of the darkness and unrolling more and more of light and the kingdom of God and his light is prevailing over the kingdom of darkness and the devil and that goes and goes and goes until it climaxes and culminates in his death now if there's an irony of ironies it's this one that God wins by losing, that God displays his strength through weakness, that God accomplishes and gains life through death. And if for a second it looks as if the serpent has won, Jesus has triumphed over him in the cross. I want to read you one passage and then we'll bring it to a close. Look at Colossians 2 verse 13. It'll be on the screen. You can read it with me. 
This is what it says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me walk you through this passage very quickly and then we'll be done. Here's what it says. You were dead in your trespasses, in your sin. You were by nature and choice, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. You were on the side of the rebellion. By nature and choice, you had sided with Satan and were in rebellion against God. But God made us alive together with him, forgiving all our trespasses. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Here's what that means. That means with every sin you've ever committed, it's just this debt that piles and accrues that you owe towards God. And I know some of you are engaged in trying to pay down your debts. You're being generous to try and pay them back. You're coming to church to try and pay them back. You're doing whatever you can to try and pay back this debt you know. But I want you to, I want you to imagine what it would be like to be in debt a billion dollars with a billion percent interest compounded every second for all eternity. Now you pay that back. You can't. And the scripture says Satan had a record of that debt. And it was like he had this case against us that he could present to God and say, you can't have them. They belong to me. They've chosen time and time and time again that they're on my side. With every sin, they've joined my rebellion. They are mine. You know what Jesus did? Jesus took that record of debt. And he nailed it on the cross with himself. Laid that debt right upon himself. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. So that on the cross of Jesus Christ, your record of debt was nailed to him all your sins and all your debts and he disarmed this enemy so that he had no case against you anymore he said it's been paid for and it is finished and then this is what it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him this pastor named Mark Driscoll describes this passage so well. He says, if you were a Christian who was reading this for the first time, in that day, in that context, here's how you would have understood it. In that day, two kings would go to battle, and they would meet up in a field or at some war zone, and they would battle, and there would be bloodshed, and men would die, but eventually one would triumph over the other. And all the victorious soldiers would gather the captured losing soldiers, and especially capture the, the losing king. And they would strip them, they would disarm them, they would make them nude. And then the king would ride back to his town and send someone in advance to announce to the waiting city the good news. And this waiting city would come, everyone would close their business and some close the schools and everyone would show up at the town square. And this parade of victorious soldiers would march through the city holding the captives of war until finally at last at the chariot of the king himself would be dragged along this naked, destroyed, fallen king, putting him to open shame before all the people and they would rejoice because they were safe. And it's as if the scriptures are saying, do you know what happened on the cross? On the cross, Jesus took the devil and his demons and stripped them and disarmed them 
And Jesus rode, as it were, on his chariot into all of the world, shouting, it is finished, the battle is done. Strip this enemy nude and naked and put him to open shame, triumphing over them in him. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I know he's still around. I know he's doing all that he can to inflict as much damage as he can. You know what he is? He's a dragon whose head has been cut off. It's like blood is spewing. And with every little bit of energy he has left, he's thrashing about as hard as he can. But my friends, his days are numbered and his end is sure. Because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Seven Mile Road, as you celebrate this Christmas this year, hope in Jesus, your warrior king born in Bethlehem in the middle of the war zone who has finally done what we could never do, who has defeated the enemy and his works, who has and will put it all to an end. As the events of last week and further even the events of your own life which constantly remind you of the broken world that you live in, as sin is all around you and the pain is all around you and you're tempted to fall in, cave in, and despair, would you please be reminded evil will not have the last word. Evil and the evil one will come to an end because Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so this Christmas, as you're celebrating on Tuesday, would you allow your heart to shout what John shouts in the last book of the Bible? After all this, at the last book of the Bible, he says, come, Lord Jesus, come, and finish what you began on Christmas morning. Let's pray together.